everyone, Jason here from Election College. Here is an exciting new opportunity for you to help support the podcast. Yeah, a lot of you have told us you want to support us, and we are here to make that happen for you. If you go over to Patreon, you can find our page, and Patreon is a place where you can give a little money to support things that you like, and we reward you with things that hopefully you also like. Uh, you can hit that up at electioncollege.com slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and we'll also have a link here in the show notes. Election College, episode 161, John Jay, part one. Let's throw a political party. Face it, the political scene sucks, but did it always? It's time for election college, and class is in session. Now, your hosts, Jason Goff and Ben Smith. Jason, we have just danced and danced and danced all around this guy. One of the premier, but often forgotten, founding fathers, John Jay. He's quite the prolific man. Yeah, if they would have made a musical about this guy, well, let's just say he would probably be extremely popular and we would be humming the tunes all day long. But they didn't. He's in it. He's in that musical that you're referring to, or not referring to, I guess, but... We've talked about John Jay in, I think, probably a dozen episodes or more, and this time he gets two episodes out of it. And, it's John you know, Jay week. It's John Jay week here <laughs> on Election College. Tune in for your chance to learn or something like that. So we should probably start off with the fact that John Jay came from a pretty wealthy family. Uh, they were a bunch of mer- merchants. Uh, hanging out up in New York City, and they had left from France because of religious persecution. Yeah, so Jay's paternal grandfather, his name was Augustus, because that's what everybody's paternal grandfather should be named, (laughs) (laughs) moved from France to New York, and he builds that successful merchant empire. And his dad, Peter, he was born there in New York, and he increased the family's fortune by trading furs and wheat and all kinds of other commodities in the new world. So December 23rd of 1745 rolls around. It's almost Christmas and we get a gift. John Jay, he comes along and uh, the family lived in New York city for a little while. So he was only there for a little while. And then they moved to Rye, New York where um, John Jay's father actually retired after uh, a smallpox epidemic broke out. And he had, uh, I think there were nine children or 10 children in total. And uh, two of them were blinded from a smallpox epidemic. And um, several other of them did not live into adulthood. So the Jay family, they were good French Huguenots or Huguenots or Huguenots or I don't know how you pronounce it. I took too much (laughs) French to be able to pronounce anything properly. They, of course, were raised in that more reformed tradition, as was his mother, Mary von Cortland. She came from a Dutch background, and yeah, man, 10 kids. And that's not as many as some families we've talked about. That's true, yeah. Uh, Interesting, Jason, about um, 
Mary's father, so it would have been John's grandfather. He was actually the uh, mayor of New York City two different times. So he was elected twice to be the mayor of uh, New York City, and then he was also in the New York Assembly, and he was you know in a bunch of other different political offices and everything. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, didn't have anything to do with the rest of the episode. It just I thought it was interesting. Yeah, it, it sets the tone. You know, that's what we're doing here. Sure, they're they're yeah. pretty influential people, and they're they're good Christian people, right? Absolutely. So Jay spends his childhood in Rye, and there he was homeschooled until he was about eight years old. And then he went over to New Rochelle where he studied under the Anglican priest, Pierre Stroop. And in 1756, that's three years after he went up to New Rochelle, he comes back to mom's house and homeschools. And in 1760, he goes on to King's College, which most of us know as Columbia College. And he makes a bunch of friends that we would know about, including Robert Livingston, who was the son of a New York aristocrat and Supreme Court justice. And Jay takes the same political viewpoints as his dad, and that is of a Whig. So in 1764, he graduates from King's College. He becomes a law clerk and a politician. And he wants to start teaching. Yeah, so 1768 rolls around, and John Jay was a pretty smart guy. He had read a whole bunch of law books and everything, and he was admitted to the bar of New York. And so there were some uh, government grants in those days, and he was able to establish a small law practice. And he created his own law office in 1771. And of course, he was also, uh, you know, a member of of multiple organizations that were important in New York, and uh, he, you know, became an officer in them. And these are kind of his first standout roles as a person who would be influential, I guess you could say, amongst other people. And so John Jay really kind of is the poster boy for this idea of a, a conservative group that's you know, interested in protecting the people's rights, protecting rule of law, uh, property rights, and and things such as that. He also, though, at the same time, resists the British and their violations of American rights. And so, uh, you know, he doesn't really want mob rule. He still likes the fact that the, the Brits are in charge. He likes the fact that they are, you know, a little bit of protection and oversight. But he's against a lot of the things they're doing, like the taxes that they're imposing. And he thinks maybe the people here in the colony should be justified to fight against those things, but he's not quite so sure that he wants to break away. Yeah. So what really ends up throwing Jay on the side of, okay, we need to break the shackles (laughs) is the burning of Norfolk, Virginia, which happens in January of 1776. And the revolutionary war is, I mean, it's just going on big time, right? 1776, we know that. He works tirelessly for the cause of the Patriots. And he seemed like, yeah, this guy, he, he'll, he'll talk to the British, right? But no, he's all in. He's like, we're going to do this and we are going to sever relations altogether. So Jason, we did jump past uh, briefly. We jumped past 
John Jay getting married, which was like a big thing, not to, it's pretty not to big jump deal. past. Yeah, we shouldn't yeah. have done that, but we did. So uh, in 1774, John marries Sarah Van Brugge Livingston, who is the daughter of a governor of New Jersey, William Livingston. And at the time they get married, she's actually 17 years old and John Jay is 28, which isn't entirely strange in those days. But you have to admit that's still kind of a, a decent sized gap. Uh, no matter what year it is. So we've talked about this before, where so many of the founding fathers were unabashedly owners of slaves. And John Jay was a slaveholder. And this was the in vogue thing for wealthy New Yorkers to participate in. But in 1774, Jay drafts a address to the people of Great Britain, which says that the image of slavery is horrible. He compares the British treatment of blacks to the British treatment of the colonists. And these comparisons between British treatment of African-Americans and of the colonists was kind of scandalous. Yeah. And so after this point, too, John Jay kind of takes on a more active role to try and abolish slavery. He drafts a law uh, for the state of New York to you know, try to abolish slavery, and it doesn't pass. But people notice, hey, um, he kind of pushing here something that might catch on. And it's funny because in 1785, by that point, it was, um, you know, had been the laws had come and gone a couple times and not been passed. But every member of the New York legislature, except for one guy, some jerk, I guess, had <laughs> voted that there should be some sort of emancipation. But the biggest problem is that nobody can really agree on, well, yeah, maybe they shouldn't be slaves, but what are we going to do with them afterwards? Like, we don't want them to have rights and stuff, right? And some people did, of course, don't get me wrong, but, uh, you know, nobody could agree on what kind of rights they should have afterwards. And of course, in the middle of all this is Aaron Burr, who, as we've come to know, can't make up his mind. <laughs> he uh, both supports this bill to, you know, get to help them be emancipated that John Jay wrote, and also says... We need to have immediate abolition of slavery. So it's interesting because, uh, you know, he, he's kind of got a, a dual mindset here. So Jay organizes boycotts against newspapers and merchants involved in the slave trade and provides legal counsel for free African-Americans who are claimed or kidnapped as slaves. And the society that he founded called the New York Manamission Society uh, he establishes it in 1785, but they helped enact a law in 1799 that called for the gradual emancipation of slaves in New York. And Jay signs this into law, jumping the gun just a little bit when he's the governor of New York. And this law provides that from July the 4th, 1799, that all children born to slave parents would be free. Now, there were some restrictions they were subject to lengthy apprenticeships, but any mention of further slavery in New York, it's going away. And you couldn't export slaves, nothing. New York was not going to have it anymore. So the caveat is, is that these children who were born into enslaved homes, they would be required to serve the mother's owner until age 28. That's for the guys. And age 25, for the ladies. 
This is years beyond what a typical period of indentured servitude would involve or apprenticeship, but it did provide for their eventual freedom. So what it all translates to is that all slaves were emancipated by July 4th, 1827. So remember that the uh, the, the British also kind of helped emancipate some of our slaves here in America. They would recruit them and put them into work in the American Revolution, which we're going to get into uh, here in just a minute. And then after they were done with whatever they needed them for, they would grant them freedom. So, you know, they worked for a while longer and then they were able to be freed. And I mean, to the British's credit, they did. And they didn't just release them, like maybe it would be the appropriate thing to do. But instead, they did follow through on you know freeing them and actually getting them out of their their um, situations that they were in. The problem was that later on, a bunch of people in the states had a real problem with that, and it became a big issue whenever. Uh, you know, whenever the, the war was over and they were like, well, we want our slaves back, so we're going to go and take them where, wherever they are. And a lot of a lot of men and women were hunted down and, um, you know, obviously treated not very well and put back into slavery. So many were released during that point and many were not. But, it, you know, Jay is this huge anti-slavery voice. And uh, in you know upstate New York, you've got a lot of slavery still being practiced and he's you know, running for office. So John Jay uh, basically says to the, the Southern slave owners, hey, um, you know, you, you want compensation for all these slaves that the, that the British freed, but I don't care. You're not getting compensation for them. So, you know, John Jay had, had been known to buy slaves and then free them. But uh, after the emancipation laws came along and uh, after the, the Revolutionary War, he didn't uh, have any more slaves. So it's kind of a weird, they're all weird to me, Jason, that people can have slaves and be against slavery simultaneously. Yeah. And you have all of this where he's working on stateside sometimes where he's involved with people who may be like-minded. Um, and then he goes over to London and is negotiating the treaty that we know as the Jay Treaty and England is like, hey, what about this? What about that? And taking the role of a southern plantation owner. Uh, so sounding like the devil right now. <laughs> yeah, it is a contradiction that you would have somebody who is against slavery, but still owns slaves. And then when you're in a certain environment, you're willing to really risk your reputation and your office to stand for the abolition of slavery. I mean, what can be more noble at that time to stand for the emancipation of African Americans and others who were enslaved? But then you go to London and negotiate the treaty that bears your name, and you're kind of like, well, okay, Great Britain, um, we're not going to demand that... <laughs> you be compensated for slaves had been freed and transported because your country took them to other areas. Uh, we're going to forget about that. That upset a lot of Southerners. Yeah, definitely. So in our next episode, we'll get into a little bit of the nitty gritty about what happened in 
Jay's life <laughs> from the war on. But uh, we're giving a little bit more background information in this episode. Yeah, so John Jay is a member of the Church of England, or at least at one point he was. And then later he becomes uh, a member of the Protestant Episcopal Church in America. And in 1785, John Jay became a warden of Trinity Church in New York City. Yes, um, that have one. Been, have you been there? Yeah. Yeah. Hasn't everybody? I think so. I think that's like the one place everybody's been. It's like, yeah, oh yeah, of course. <laughs> of course I've been there. And I think that... um they were there in National Treasure, too. So everybody kind of feels like they were there. Exactly. Yeah. But <laughs> so he uh, he was the secretary for Congress for foreign affairs. And a- after the revolution comes along, and, and this is just kind of getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but he says, you know, there should be this thing where the Archbishop of, of Canterbury, he approves the ordination of bishops for the Episcopal Church in the United States. And they're like, okay, good idea, John. What other kind of ideas do you have? And then he was like, well, how about we have this thing where um, nobody who's Catholic is allowed to hold a public office? And they were like, yeah, we don't, we don't think we're going to go that far, John. That's probably that's a little further than we want to go. Even though, of course, they were Protestant. So um, he had some good ideas in the in the religious community, and then some ones that didn't gain any traction. Yeah. So if you're Catholic, you probably don't care too much for Mr. J. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, he served as vice president and president of the American Bible Society, which is still around to this day. And he believed that the most effective way of ensuring world peace was to spread the Christian gospel. So in 1816, and Ben, get ready for this, because this is a really long quote and my voice is still a little raspy from Andy Jack's inauguration party. <laughs> so bear with me. But this is important because this really gives you a a good insight into how he uh, merged the his religious views into his civic uh, views. He wrote a letter to John Murray, who was a member of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives, quote, Real Christians will abstain from violating the rights of others and therefore will not provoke war. Almost all nations have peace or war at the will and pleasure of rulers whom they did not elect and who are not always wise or virtuous. Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers, and it is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. So he felt very much that if you're going to be in office in the United States, you needed to be Christian. And that he also stated that the moral precepts of Christianity were absolutely necessary for good government. He said, quote, no human society has ever been able to maintain both order and freedom, both cohesiveness and liberty apart from the moral precepts of the Christian religion. Should our Republic ever forget this, fundamental precept of governance, we will then be surely doomed. So he's like a half step away from a theonomist, if you're familiar with that. Uh, You know, pretty close to that, but not quite. And so there's a lot of discussion about, hey, were our founding fathers, were they Christian or were they agnostic or were they whatever, uh, stumbled around there a little bit. But it, there's a lot of questions about what they believed. But with John Jay, you kind of don't have the ability to have any kind of questions about what he believes. Um, definitely, you know, a, a man who believed in God and, and Christianity in general. Yeah. So join us on Thursday 
as we talk about his role in the American Revolution and what ends up happening in his life as a result of his involvement in that. And why don't we talk more about John Jay when we list the founding fathers? We'll get into that as well. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, We wanted to remind you to head on over to iTunes and leave us a review because that's a big deal for us. If you go over to electioncollege.com slash review, you can leave us a short little review. It doesn't have to be terribly long and a star rating. And we would would love you for that forever. Yeah. Cross our hearts and all that good stuff. And be sure to, uh, while you're on the internet, interact with us. We love hearing from you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Election College. Thanks, and we'll talk to you next time. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.